The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to, to support the show. But for now, welcome to, to the, the Legendarium. Legendarium. I'm reaching into our third social media platform to get questions for us to address oh, okay and this is a new record i think i didn't think grinder had that option well you'd be surprised <laughs> you can do all sorts of stuff on grinder if you know who to ask and let's end that come hard at the conversation right there <laughs> welcome everybody to the legendarium podcast this is episode oh gosh what is it 268 i think Yay! Today we're talking about The Lord of the Rings Book 2. So this is the latter half of The Fellowship of the Ring. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. I am your host, Craig Hanks, and over there, he's uglier than a goblin and twice as likely to leer at you. It's Kyle Lemon. Yeah, I'll give you that. I'm okay. with it. I'm with and, it. And she's like Galadriel, blonde, terrifying, and spends a lot of time looking at mirrors. It's Megan Smythe. Oh, that's a compliment and therefore untrue. <laughs> and he's like glowing at a feast. You just hope he doesn't sit next to you and start in on the old war stories. It's Ryan Bruckman. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not familiar enough with Glowing's war stories other than The Hobbit, so I have no comeback for you. Did you not read the many meetings chapter, the first chapter in this book? Yes, I, I, I did. <laughs> I don't <laughs> recall this moment. All right. Well, anyway. I, I have no having memory read of this. and familiarity are two different things. <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right. So today we're covering the entirety of book two, so... Uh, no, I'm not going to spoil. I, I'm just going to say, yeah, we're going to talk about the entirety of Lord of the Rings, but we're concentrating on this. So I don't want to hear one freaking word about spoilers on Twitter or anywhere else. So if you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings, get out. Yeah, I guess. Well past the statute of limitations. On spoilers <laughs> yeah, exactly. <here>. Yeah. <laughs> it's been 70 years. All right. So, oh gosh, any other housekeeping, go to patreon.com slash legendarium. If you enjoy what you hear here by the end of the episode, I'm not talking about up to now. Uh, and go to thelegendarium.reddit.com to join the conversation there. You can also find a link to our Discord server there if you want to join in the live conversation that we have going on at any given moment. Shall we dive in? Yeah. I think we're ready. Let's do it. All right. This is uh, this is quite a section. There's a lot, a lot that goes on in yep. book two, uh, just as far as events and set pieces. And so I've got a little recap for you. Yay. If you're ready. Is I, it a poem? It is. It is. I <laughs> need Kyle to beatbox for me. Sweet We've baby started Gandalf. something and this is now dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you ready? <clears throat> I get it. Book two starts off slowly with a story, a feast, and a meeting. My advice is to relax and enjoy it because this peace and quiet will prove fleeting. Soon we move south toward danger and meet wolves and a watcher in the water. The fellowship is chased into Moria and with the Balrog, things get a bit hotter. Yes, Gandalf goes down to the flick of a whip. He's gone, and our heroes couldn't be sadder. Are you ready for this, Megan? Yeah. But they make their way into the realm of Lothlorien, where Galadriel's rest makes them... gladder. Oh, no. Come on! That was terrible. That's a rhyme right there. I can't believe you even prefaced that with a wait for it. <laughs> but a shadow I'm still is... waiting for it, actually. I'm not, that, that's not the rhyme I would have gone with, but okay, continue. But a shadow is forming over the quest, and something's not right as they rest from their travels. Not long after leaving, they're met with a trial. The ring pulls too hard, and Boromir unravels. Now the fellowship is broken, scattered to the wind. Though it's not like the quest has gone off and ceased, 
but the bulk run around panic and confused as Frodo and Sam take a boat to the east. There you are. That's the entirety of book two in five stanzas. How do you like that? Yeah. Well done. Well done, sir. You, I, I kind of feel like you don't mean that. All right. I, I mean it 80%. I'm <laughs> glad I'm, I'm, I'm going to let that one slide. <laughs> I put that in as a placeholder. I'm like, I'll find something better. And then it kept making me chuckle at how bad it was. So I, I couldn't get rid of it. Perfect. All right. So let's talk about book two. And I want to start with what you guys have to say about it. And then we'll move into some of the listener comments and questions that they want us to address. Uh, Ryan, you said that you came in ultra prepared for this episode. Again, it's a low bar, but <laughs> what did you want to? What, what do you want to talk about first with this? Uh, first, uh, the idea we don't deal with a lot in this um, in the Lord of the Rings. I feel, and I don't know if it qualifies, but prophecy. Okay, because uh, Bor, uh, not Bormir, Faramir has a dream, if I remember correctly. Right, like a vision. And it actually lays out what's going to occur at this council. And I was like, wait a minute, like we've never, there's been no great prophecy in the Lord of the Rings of, mm -hmm. you know, he who that be shortest shall cast it to the flame. Like, <laughs> this is why I don't You should really it. write books. <laughs> I will, I will someday, and they will be amazing. Um, but it stood out to me to hear some like, wait a minute, this is my first instance of a semi-prophecy type thing. How does that fit in this world as a whole? Is it, does it qualify as prophecy or what? And will we see more of that in the future? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I mean, prophecy in this instance, I mean, it, it functions a lot like magic does in Middle Earth, right? We talk all the time about soft and hard magic systems and the pendulum in the uh, the fantasy publishing world has swung hard toward hard magic systems mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but in this case it's a very soft magic system and i kind of feel like this fits right in where it's like yeah there's a vision there's some kind of prophecy who's the prophecy from i don't know who cares oh i i guess not me anymore <laughs> you know <laughs> like you don't you don't have to know mm -hmm. for the story to function where this came from and you know we kind of have talked in our previous lord of the rings series we talked about the presence of, uh, of fate and uh, providence and that there's some good working to aid the fellowship even though we don't see it in the story uh, you know the same way that we see the evil that's right? kind of and i think in a more modern setting we would be very inclined to see that this was the hand of divinity or whatever and i was just kind of i kind of thought about this is is this is there iru iluvatar reaching out to to guide this this action on middle earth at all you know i'm not thinking that's going to be definitively spelled out but could you make that argument based on some of these moments right okay i don't know what do you guys think you have any thoughts on prophecy here not really i'm, I'm stuck on the whole ilubatar i don't know hmm. what that is iru uh, ilubatar go, is the name of god in this in mm -hmm. middle earth okay yeah, I I've like, been drugged through some Silmarillion, so that's why I was oh, able to okay. throw that. I, was, I name dropped Iru Iluvatar. That's basically me. Just I was, I was cool. impressed. I like that it's treated like you said the same way as kind of the soft magic system. It's like soft prophecy because it's not like Faramir sees this and it's a guarantee that this is how things are going to go down. It's just more of a this is I don't know. There's a lot of talk of like hope and like even Gandalf always is like dropping little lines here or there of like. Or Elrond when he's telling Aragorn that he's got to go and do this thing or go do that thing. And it's not really like necessarily prophecy, but foresight. And like almost just reinstilling 
the idea of hope that like it's still doable to accomplish this task or there's still, you know, the fate of men or the fate of the world is still uh, able to be saved. And so I like that it's just kind of, it functions at least for me as a reader is more of just a reminder of like, as much as I'm piling on all of this doom and awfulness, let me give you this little cut scene for Faramir to remind you like, there's hope out there. Mm-hmm. We're going to get there. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's almost Tolkien acting in that same divine role of just giving his reader an idea of like, no, nah, there's there's still good out there. There's things that can happen. So, And I do like, it's nice that this kind of semi-prophecy, whatever it is, cuts off at the council. Mm-hmm. It's not a checklist of things to win the day. It basically ends, you know, saying that, you know, and the halfling fourth shall stand. And once that moment's there, it's like, okay, prophecy fulfilled. Oh, yeah. Uh, now we're back to mm-hmm. back to the uh, uncertainty of it, how does this work? It doesn't, it's not a roadmap for how, how the good guys are going to win. It's not mm-hmm. taking us all the way through the entire story. Right. It's just, why are these characters here? Well, Boromir heard about some stuff, so he showed up. This, this read-through, I did kind of realize how many people were there coincidentally versus like, it felt like movies, everything. It feels like mm-hmm. there was a great summoning of you, everyone. There's an important thing happening right. here in Rivendell. Come here and we will talk about it. And it's like, oh no, I'm, I came here because of some things going on back home and I needed to let you know about this. And right. we had questions and it just happened that we all got together at the same time. Whoa, what a coincidence. What mm-hmm. luck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As if by chance is a phrase that happens all the time in the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Megan, did you have anything you wanted to bring up before we get to our listener comments? Oh, I just feel dumb today. Not really. I didn't, I didn't make my (sighs) notes as cohesive and normal. I know. Okay. No problem. Kyle? Um, yeah, I'll be skipping ahead a little bit from where we are. That's fine. We'll go back. We'll go back. But I really wanted to call attention to the, I think it's the chapter of the journey in the dark or it's when they go to Moria. Yeah. Right. And I thought that it was really, what was really interesting for me is Tolkien's use of sound and the drums that you hear throughout the whole chapter. And the way, you know, he, he describes the drum sound and it's doom, boom, doom, boom. And then it slowly just is doom, 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 doom. And just that sense of dread and doom that you're supposed to feel as you're getting, you're ramping up the action in Moria and you get into the encounter with the Balrog and like, he's literally just using the word doom to describe their doom that is on its way. But it's so well done in setting the mood and the intensity mm-hmm. and the pacing for that section. Um, just to, to describe how dark it is, how, how scary it is and that their doom is on the way and it's and it's a continuous beat of the drum that is on the way sounding their doom. Awesome. Yeah, I love that point a lot. And now I think Ryan really wishes that Tolkien had named it Mount Doom Boom. <laughs> just <laughs> to make it even better. My sorry, my visual cuz I had the same thought reading through I'm like this is really it's very <laughs> explicitly written to be the sound is supposed to you know share this feeling of doom, but I just sat there and I'm like it's really I just imagine being the Balrog walking around, doom, doom, da, frick. Like <laughs> <laughs> puts on squeaky shoes to just change things up every now and then walk around Maria. <laughs> Twists his mustache. Yeah. It is interesting the way the way they talk about 
light and dark in this section where the only light that they have is Gandalf's staff. And even then he's worried about making it too bright because he doesn't want to attract anything, but mm -hmm. they have to have light because otherwise they might just fall into a pit or down a flight of stairs or into some other terrible situation. And so they need some kind of, and so then when they come into Balin's chamber yep, um, and it has the shaft of light coming from outside it, and it may even be dark outside, but it's still just so bright in comparison to the whole rest of the place. This chapter that you guys are describing in Moria, or these chapters, I guess, um, are, it, this portion of the story, I should say, is one of my favorite in terms of how he's able to create the visual mm -hmm. language mm -hmm. that he goes for. I, he's so successful that the artist's renderings, you know, if you look at Alan Lee's rendering of the mm -hmm. Chamber of Mazarbul with the light coming in on Balin's tomb is so spot on. It's so perfect. You can't imagine it being any other way to the yeah. point where in the Peter Jackson rendition, what do they do? They take the painting and they make that mm -hmm. because it's so perfect. There's so many little visual things that they kind of changed or tweaked a little bit. You know, the hobbits aren't so rotund as they are in the story. That, that sort of little thing where they say, well, you know, this doesn't quite work for movies, but uh, but the visual of your, it's completely dark. All mm -hmm. you have is Gandalf's staff. And so they do these big wide shots of them running through, uh, you, you know, the, the chamber or yeah. whatever. And across tiny bridges with no railings. Exactly. And all you get is Gandalf's staff faintly lighting everything around it. It's yeah. so oppressive and big and awesome. Yeah, just really well done. Uh, and then the Balrog as well. Uh, and now we get into one of the, the controversies that somebody brought up. It was uh, Ashaman on the uh, Discord server asks for our thoughts on the Balrogs with Wings controversy. Um, I have none. I don't care. So, anybody else? I think we could start a nice uh, fantasy-based restaurant system called uh, Balrogs Wild Wings. And <laughs> <laughs> all fantasy they're, films They're pretty all the spicy. Yeah. I would eat those. With a nice smoky flavor to them. <laughs> I... I only <laughs> recently became aware that there was a controversy with this. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't, I'm sorry, to me, and I apologize to those on the other side of the uh, the argument here. It, I don't think there's much of an argument here. It literally says the second time it mentions them, its, it's wings. Yeah. It's, I was like, oh, it has they're, yeah, they're there. Two mentions of its wings. Right. One, it describes it as the wings like sh shadow-like mm -hmm. wings or whatever. But then it says, and its wings were spread from wall to wall as it, stood, as it drew itself up to great height. And its wings were spread from wall to wall. There you go. So there's... Are wings. We've solved years of angst and controversy <laughs> here well, in the Legendary. So, and You're I just think if, if it lives in like this deep, deep, dark pit, how in the world else would it get out of it? Without wings? Without wings. Well, I, I mean, demons have you can wings. only climb so far. Yeah. Uh, there may be... So okay, look, we're going to do a deep dive here. I'm going to put my elbow patches on and say they're the part of the controversy, which I have not followed. Like I said, I don't care about this. I'm sorry for people who do. Uh, but part of it may be that there's a lot of mention of Balrogs in the Silmarillion and they're on the battlefield and, uh, you know, sword fighting with all sorts of elves and men and all this stuff. And there's no mention of them having wings there. And so, wait a minute, how come this one has wings? And I would just point out that there are different types of dragons as well. And Ancalagon the Black, I think it's Ancalagon the Black, doesn't have wings. I know that, uh, shoot, what's the name of the dragon in uh, in Turin's story? 
Oh, well, it doesn't yeah. matter. Uh, it, not every dragon has wings. Oh, shoot. I love that you looked to me like, yeah, I could bail you out on that well, one. Because like, we were in the we were in the Turin chapter. You know, some of these details flood, flee, flee from your mind every once in a while. And Caligon may have had wings, but... Uh, Louis but, Theron, that's his name. No, I was just going to say Louis because I just wanted to pick Lewis a name. Theron. I just wanted to be included. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, anyway, it, maybe this is just a different kind of Balrog. Maybe they had different physical manifestations. He comes from mixed parentage. There you go. He's half Balrog, half Wyvern. <laughs> okay, let's move on before we get weirder. Uh, Jack. Okay, so Jack from the Discord server is going to take us back. All right. So, Kyle, as promised, we're going back toward the beginning of book two. We're going back. Many meetings, as in chapter one of this book, has stopped so many of my Lord of the Rings attempts dead in their tracks. Does the cast also struggle to get through it? Yes. Really? Okay. So I guess I shouldn't be so surprised because I do understand, but uh, tell me more, Kyle. It's just a slow beginning. I think that that's by design, though, and I think it actually, to my point in the last episode, that I, you know, trying to look at these books as story arcs of themselves so book two how do we start Mm -hmm. we start with frodo waking up in his bed and that how many stories have you read where your protagonist wakes up from a dream or wakes up from some event and that's the beginning of the book right ocarina of time yeah there you go but it's just a slow i mean it's just after you have come off of weathertop and all the action that has just happened in the last book and then you get into many meetings and it's just this slow parade of people that you're encountering it's just it's just and tolkien tolkien does the thing that jordan does and that martin does where he spends a lot of time with descriptions Mm -hmm. and tolkien's love of descriptions is in the landscape and most of this chapter for me is him describing the scenery and the landscape and that's fine and it's all rich and very descriptive but it takes a little while to get into, so I yeah. can totally see why people would be like, dude. And then you hit the Council of Elrond, with his, which is just the biggest info dump on the face of the planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's all was... super important. Yeah. And I think there was a question before where it was like, I think it came up on our Instagram or something. Is the Council of Elrond too long? And I think right. you answered no. And I would agree no from a sense of all of the information that we get out of the Council of Elrond is necessary. But... You could have broken it up if you wanted to, but the the fact that you have two of these really long, uh, like many meetings is just setting the scene and kind of getting you back into where right. we're at. And then you go into Council of Elrond. It feels like a long journey before you're actually about to embark on your journey. Yeah. So, so I get it. I want to, I, I understand as well. I understand this in the same way as I understand people who complain about it takes so long to get out of the Shire. Uh, because uh, if we speak about it structurally, they serve almost the exact same purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and in book one, we have kind of a, a mini Lord of the Rings in its entirety, almost. You okay. have the the hobbits are the fellowship and they've got to get the ring to a certain place and they encounter obstacles and they find rest along the way. They encounter more obstacles and things are almost lost. You're, you're almost cooked and then you get to the end and you get across the river and you made it. You got the ring to where it's supposed to be. And that's that's the entire story yep. summed up in book one. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a practice run for mm-hmm. both the hobbits and the readers. And then you get into book two and it's kind of a similar thing. First of all, if you, if you keep it 
how do I how do I put this? If you keep it stitched stitched with book one, then you need a respite. You need some time after such a harrowing journey mm-hmm. to relax and reset, and for the hobbits to get their feet back under them. And so there is that to it. Uh, but then it also you guys were talking last time about how the the first part of book one, when we're stuck in the Shire for a hundred pages, how that provides you with an opportunity to understand what the hobbits are fighting for mm-hmm. why they're doing what they're doing because they love the shire and here's what the shire is you get a chance to feel like you've lived there for a while and now we have uh, many meetings and the council of elrond to a lesser extent um, that's very much like chapter two uh, mm-hmm. when gandalf is talking to frodo in, in the first book that's it's much like that an info dump um but anyway but for the most part, many meetings is kind of that same thing where you get to see these people. You get to see the dwarves interact with him. You get to see how the elves live. Um, and you get to meet Boromir and, and because, some others. Yeah, and, because again, like you said, if you if you have it right after book one, you need that respite. But even if you take away book one, start chapter one of book two, many meetings, and read it as if it is its own book. And that chapter starts you as if you were reading a book all by itself yep you don't need to have any of the information from book one to be able to start from chapter one book two and read the rest of the book and still know what what's going on of course it wouldn't mean as much sure but you but, but you still yeah. have all the information there and I, again if you if you just read the first paragraph frodo woke and found himself lying in bed at first he thought that he had that he had slept late after a long unpleasant dream that still hovered on the edge of me- of memory like that is an opening line to a book. You're introducing Frodo. I don't know who Frodo is, but I'll find out. And that gives me interest or intrigue into, whoa, what just happened? He woke, found found himself in the bed, and he slept late. And there's all this un, this long unpleasant dream. What was that all about? Well, you're gonna get it when you get into the Council of Elrond. Wait, he was stabbed. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're starting this exactly. Early. <laughs> you can totally read it on its own or connected, and it works that way. But you have to have that pacing that you're talking about to be able to get into the story that is about to unfold. Now, if if a writer turned in a manuscript that was books two through six of The Lord of the Rings and they left out book one, a publisher or an editor would tear that that's, apart. That's called Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Episode four, five, and six. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you're saying. No, no, no. I mean, I'm to be just fair, Star Wars this, was saved in the editing. There, there's no, there's no action until you get into chapter three, right? There's sure, no, but there's not that. There's no in, inciting incident. Sure, but so, I mean, I'm same, just saying, same thing in the first book, right? Because you're in the Shire no, totally. for so long. I'm, yeah, uh, I guess I'm just, I'm just pointing out this is not a. Wait, uh, I just want to make sure I'm understanding. Typical. This. Are book. you saying that the Shire is the political argumentations of the early tri- prequels is that what i'm saying here yes okay <laughs> just wanted to make sure that my no, heart no. broke for the right reason oh, <laughs> oh gosh uh, we're far afield but what i'm saying is they work independently yeah as stories mm-hmm. and collectively as an overall story so i think yeah your point from earlier from the last episode where you talked about uh, seeing these as structured and mm-hmm. separately, you know, as books in and of themselves, yeah. book one, book two, mm-hmm. book three. Uh, I don't think that that works outside of book one, but I think you could say That's book what I'm one. for book two is that it does. Hang on. It, oh, no, book two does not. Um, but we'll get there. So book one definitely has that whole arc, beginning, middle, end. Book mm-hmm. two does not. But book two two, three, four, five, and half of six has exactly that, what you got in book one. Book two does as well. No. 
Yes. All does. right. So <laughs> I we're going to get to the end here. Okay. We can come back to this. This. All right. What what I think is interesting about this many meetings and the Council of Elrond is it it gives another chance. I mean, we're if we're continuing this from it's the Hobbit story, it's the Hobbit's point of view. Sorry, it's the Hobbit story, it's the Hobbit's point of view, which is how I read it, and maybe not how everybody would, but um, kind of having a chance to be in Rivendell. It's this legendary place that they've heard tell about and see that it really is that beautiful and these people are exactly what we thought that they would be and even better and then they begin it's on a world building standpoint these are some really cool chapters where they're really expanding this world and the hobbits are seeing because we had the whole first book was about the hobbits and hobbiton and then slowly moving out into the world and seeing how big it is that they didn't ever expect and then all of a sudden they start meeting elves and dwarves and men and really seeing what a small part they have been so far and um what like how how much danger that they were actually in that they weren't actually aware of i just think that's really really exciting good point good point um ryan plitstam on instagram asked uh is the council of elrond too long for modern audiences what's your answer to that for modern audiences it probably um depending i i honestly didn't really have a problem with it because each of the sub stories that were told inside there are interesting mm-hmm. uh but it doesn't progress your larger story arc a lot it's more just context it um oh what is the accurate word for that uh, exposition yeah exposition that's the word i was looking for nothing still kills a story like too much exposition yeah and i think that if you if you're looking at this in the sense of the largest the larger story arc of the Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings, I get why people be like this is too long. It's not progressing anything. But honestly, it there's a lot in there that is worth hearing about to give you context of the other parts of the world that you will see later on. Right. You know, being able to to know what's going on down in Isengard, to know uh, how the uh, how Gondor is being is currently uh, the the fate of Gondor right now. You know, they've lost the river or large portions of the river and things like that so there's this great protection that has been here for the for the world is now faded which is the whole reason boromir has come up basically right um so i is it too long for modern audiences like i said probably but it's worth the read anyway i get you so uh, my counter to that and I, I i understand why that would be the case you know people would say that this is too long for modern audiences so an editor might read this chapter and say, hey, whoa, 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 you're doing a lot of telling. You need to show me, mm-hmm. right? Show me what's going on here. So Tolkien turned in this manuscript and, you know, the book, the end product ended up being 385,000 words, something like that, 387, somewhere along those lines. Turns in this massive manuscript. And if it had been a modern book, the publisher would have looked at that and said, "Oh no 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 no! You you need to read th- you need to write three to five of those, because you need to. I need a book that, uh, or at least portions of the book that show me what's going on down in Gondor. I need a point of view character in Gondor. Mm. Oh, you want to tell me the dwarf story? I need a point of view mm-hmm. character over there. And suddenly you get into the Wheel of Time, or you get into right. something else. You know the Lightbringer series where you have these point of views all over the place showing you everything that's going on." Well, Tolkien, and I am not arguing that that is the wrong way to do it or that Tolkien's is the right or the wrong way to do it. I'm just saying that uh, the long series was not a thing. 
Tolkien right. was the first one to come along and, and say, look at how big a world you can create. Uh, and the only way that he could do it with the, the publishing that was allowed or, you know it's, what I mean, yeah. was allowed back then was this way with a ton of exposition in one place to it's, set up the world. And it's interesting where he spends his time in that exposition as well, because he mentions his ride back from Rohan back to the Shire or whatever after you know he mm -hmm. Gandalf mentions that right yeah but he doesn't go into it as much he doesn't right. go into the history of Rohan and all that because we're about to get to Rohan in the mm -hmm. next book right and so there is that kind of point of view uh opening but like opening up and broadening the story when and he knows that he's going to get there but this is the information that he doesn't have planned out or that he knows that he's not he has to have the context here now for you to understand the gravity of the quest and we can get to some of this other stuff later but here's a chunk of information or several chunks of information and like you said i think for modern audiences it would just be it would either be you're spreading it out that far and, and making it into a larger series or you're just taking these and, and making them chapters of them of, of themselves so instead of all of it being included into the council of elrond chapter which is like 35 something pages not it's really not that long it's not that mm -hmm. long but you would just have those be slightly longer and and make those smaller chunks for the reader a little more digestible yeah so in one sitting you could read about uh isildur's bane and that's it and then you get to the next chapter and it's about you know whatever else that gandalf wants to unveil in that council yeah Right, but here, the point in the story, like if we're looking at the overall story, the point here is that all of these characters need to know this information. So if he took this out and, oh, we're going to do this point of view character here telling us this story, like we as the readers would understand what's going on, but, but you Gandalf lose and Elrond and everybody else wouldn't have an, yeah, they wouldn't have the motivation. They wouldn't know where they're supposed to go. They wouldn't know where they're supposed to avoid. I actually That's a good point. made note of the order in which Elrond has people reveal things uh -huh. actually is structured to build up to it. Because honestly, if you walked into a council and the main topic of discussion was, we have the ring of power yeah. of Sauron, <laughs> that should probably be your headlining discussion, right? You come in here, all right, everybody, I know you've got important things to talk about, right. but let's start here. Sauron's ring is right there. We just got it. We need to figure out how to get rid of that. Everything else is secondary. Right. But he actually structures it out and says, no, everyone here, tell your story. Tell how you got to this point, and now we'll show you why it's important that you're that all of that happened for you to be here to make this decision. So that mm -hmm. way, when it's like, all right, now we got to send this off to have it be destroyed. You've already mentioned, you know, that they're motivated yeah. to follow. Like Boromir's like, oh yeah, if we can get that uh, out of the picture, all of a sudden Gondor's in a better position. And the story I just told, not a, like mm -hmm. we'll be able to handle yeah. that. And it's cool because we, again, we as readers already know that the Ring of Power has been found and that it needs to be destroyed. Um, but here we have all of these other sections that, again, are building the world and helping everybody else to realize, oh, my gosh, like this is what is happening in the world that is related to this one thing. So all of these things are a problem. But if we get rid of this one thing or if we if we support each other while, you know, two people or one person is going to destroy this ring, we can wipe out. Not all of our problems, but a lot of this will it actually save us some headaches. It showcases really well the reach of of how far Sauron's reach has actually gone mm -hmm. in this story, um, versus being this mysterious evil off in you know the south. South, yes. yeah, yeah. There, you know, it's you realize, oh no, this is literally the forest of Mirkwood has been poisoned again. Basically, mm -hmm. you know, we uh, we it is all around us, 
and we haven't seen it because it hasn't been super obvious. Yeah. Oh, and, we didn't know that Rohan was sending their best horses to Mordor or they were being taken to Mordor. Like that's that's an issue. They can get to us a lot easier now. Yeah. Continue. So it, no, that, that's basically it. It just it ramps up immediately through all these stories. The amount of evil that you're facing and it increases the stakes of what's happening yeah. uh, of, of the piece. So it's it's no longer a viable solution to just keep it here at Rivendell and hide it. It's it's actually a bigger problem than we thought. We really need to do something now. It also teaches us that Gandalf's hair is really bright in the evening light. <laughs> <laughs> Among other things. Yes. Among other important, important things. I, I kind of chuckled at that moment when he talked about how he was walking on the top of Orthanc and Frodo's like, I saw you. What? What? Wait, what? I saw <laughs> your, the moon glinting in your hair. I'm like, how far away are you that your hair, like how bright is your hair? Vision, that it's a vision beacon? Ryan. Vision. That is so oh, creepy. Right, right. Vision. <laughs> really? Did you think he actually saw him? No, I. it was just one of those moments. So okay. Like, okay. <laughs> fair, fair enough, I suppose. I do want to make one more point on the is this too long for modern audiences. Uh, well, take a look at all the things that we've read on this podcast. They're all too long for modern audiences. Let's be honest. You know, anyway. The, yeah. the, the other thing I would say, actually, if I can point to anything else, one of the most beloved series that we have mentioned on and read on this podcast is the uh, Way of Kings. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. you know, Stormlight Radiance. Archive. Oh, yeah, Stormlight Archive. Thank you. The Way of Kings, first 500 pages. Oh, my gosh. So boring if you're not prepared for it. If you're not willing, <laughs> if you're not willing to put trust in Sanderson and give him the time to build it up, then it is at least as boring <laughs> as reading many meetings in the Council of Elrond. I'm just going to say it. I agree. You know, it on it, a scale from Council of Elrond to Crossroads of Twilight. <laughs> where are we? <laughs> Very nice. Anyway, that's that's. I'm not saying that the Way of Kings is boring. I'm saying it would be for somebody who's not you know really into it so there you go all right should we move on to the next thing here another one from ashaman uh well no we've talked about uh magic in the lord of the rings he says i think he uh would better be he if it's ashaman uh whenever there's a discussion about the magic in the books it seems that the magic users are confused by the mortal conception of magic and largely attribute it to them being good at a particular craft or simply very knowledgeable and wise Personally, this is one of my favorite parts of the world as it's so hazy on what is actually magic and what just seems like magic to the hobbits and other common folk. Uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about magic already and how want, soft it is. Yeah, and I think that magic is portrayed as really not magic at all. It's just levels of understanding and mm -hmm. levels of uh, levels of exposure. So one of the good, one of the best examples I can think of is. I think they get their elven cloaks, right? Right. And they say, oh, are these magic? And they say, they're elven. I don't know what you mean by yeah, that. But. Yeah, they're elven. And they're not magic necessarily. And so it's, it's. I think it's illustrating that something that is elven that is perceived as magical to a hobbit or a man or whatever is just another level of understanding or another level of reality. Because to elves, it's just the norm. This is just how it works. And this is our cloaks and this is what they do right it doesn't matter how many midichlorians gandalf has <laughs> right and so i think that there is probably several <laughs> layers above that you know you get from elven into whatever else that is and whatever gandalf's magic is it's just his level of understanding and existence um that will seem magical to those that don't have that same 
level of understanding. And this is something, if you'll forgive me for bringing up, again, something that we talked about in that first round of uh, our Lord of the Rings read-through. Six years ago, Ryan, we were 26 years old when we did that. Yeah, and our best years were already behind us. Exactly. Uh, But (laughs) if you'll forgive me for bringing up another point from that, this is something to watch for as we go through the story, and that's the juxtaposition of the magic that we see from the elves and the juxt to the magic that we see from the enemy and how that word is is more i think it's even the elves of lothlorien in this chapter or in this section who say that that word is much better used for what the enemy is doing so they don't particularly care for the word magic for what they do it's you know it's art or it's science or it's whatever the understanding that they have is like you say kyle but what the enemy does is more nefarious and thus deserves the term magic more in some way so something to watch for witchcraft <laughs> well and i could i could see it being incomprehensible in a way that you know thals would never consider using their skills or their own particular brand of magic in any form of way that Mordor does. And so yeah. I could understand them wanting to distance themselves from it. I get you. Uh, so Abe Lincoln Froman would like us to discuss why everybody is so chill uh, that Gandalf dies. Okay, so we're skipping ahead a little bit. We're in the Mines of Moria. We, we are going to come back again after this, but I wanted to make sure we got to this one. Uh, he says, everybody seems super chill about it until they reach Lothlorien. And... Why, why don't you just go ahead and give me your takes on that? What do you think? I don't I don't necessarily think that that's, well, if they are, it's because they're trying to stave off the emotion until they can get to a safe place. Like they're literally fleeing for their lives at that point. They're trying to get out of Moria, which again, now they don't have Gandalf's light. So they're groping around in the dark or doing whatever they can to get the heck out of there. Um, they don't really have time to sit and be upset for very long. And okay. so I, I Good point. would imagine it's like a battle response somehow what do you think ryan i am along the same lines as what megan just said i i don't think that they are chill i think they're trying to survive um they do take a moment it seems you know aragorn the start of chapter six is literally aragorn not being chill like still leading but not being chill with you know gandalf right. dying Admittedly, it's not weeping and wailing. Aragorn's not pounding on his chest going, Gandalf, why didn't you listen to me the first time? <laughs> wow. Thank you. <laughs> I've decided to act more. Yes, I, 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 can, I can see that. Thank you. But he said, I mean, it says right at the very beginning, Alas, I fear, not, I fear we cannot stay here longer, said Aragorn. He looked toward the mountains and held up his sword. Farewell, Gandalf, he cried. Oh, sorry, he cried with the- exclamation. Farewell, Gandalf. <laughs> Is this, are you going to act again? If you want. If you I want. don't, I don't. Ever. Did I not say to you, if you pass the doors of Moria, beware, alas, that I spoke true? What um, hope have we without you? And, and can we go to the paragraph right before that, at the end yeah. of chapter 5? They looked back, dark yawned the archway of the, sh- of the gates under the mountain shadow. Faint and far beneath the earth rolled the slow drumbeats. Doom. A thin black smoke trailed out. Nothing else was to be seen. The dale all around was empty. Doom. And then this is the key point here. Grief at last wholly overcame them, mm-hmm. and they wept long, some standing in silence and, and silent, some cast upon the ground. Doom, doom. The drum beats faded. And so he does explicitly say grief wholly overcame them, mm-hmm. and they were unable to function for a while, even Aragorn, until he was able to pick himself up and get everybody else going. And I would say beyond the 
the fight or flight type of thing that's happening where, you know, they are running for their lives and there's a, a necessity to not focus on what just happened and get the hell out of there. When something that traumatic happens, there is a period of shock mm-hmm. where you're not processing. You can't process it fully. There's no way that you can really even understand what just happened or the significance of what just happened because you are in such disbelief or or you're just flat out denying what you've seen or what has happened. And then very naturally, how he describes that as grief washed over them or whatever. That is how that happens. There's going to be a disconnect between time Gandalf falls off the bridge to time they actually can can process that right and so it might seem in the narrative that like they just don't care about it right now but again they're running for their lives and they, two, they can't they can't care about it because they can't process what's happening until they get to a point where they can stop and let it wash over them so they get to that point when they first get into the dimmerel dale and they and aragorn lets them grieve for a moment then he picks them up and says let's go we got to get out of here uh, and when they get to lothlorien they finally have a moment to mm-hmm. process. And so they do. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I think Abe Lincoln Froman is saying, you know, they're chill about it until they reach Lothlorien. So they've had their, uh, they've had their moment of extreme grief. And then when they get to Lothlorien, they've, they, you know, they've had to run. Now we're in safety. We're in this place where we're protected. We can let our guard down for a moment. Now they start to process and talk about it. What does this mean for us? What did he mean to us? Mm-hmm. Et cetera, et cetera. This is made even, this whole sequence is just even sadder for me when I think about how Tolkien was a soldier and probably had to go through about this process a lot himself yeah. and would totally understand that. Well, and if you are, a, if you're in war, if you're in battle, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's a similar thing where there's uh there are moments where you have to stop and grieve mm-hmm. and there are moments where you're in shock but if you want to survive and if you want to take care of your surviving compatriots you have to get up you have to keep moving you have to go until you can get to a place of refuge where you can finally and hope that you have time for the quote-unquote luxury of grieving right yeah all right wow that was that was something that brought us all right down <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize, I don't know why I didn't catch it before, but just since we're in this zone of the story, um, Gandalf shatters his staff when he stops the Balrog. I did not mm-hmm. catch that the first time. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, that's that's rather symbolic here, knowing you know the future, but uh, and also considering if he had to continue battling the Balrog, how would he have done that after he shattered his staff? It's true. So shall we go back just a little bit? I'm I'm reaching into our third social media platform to get questions for us to address oh okay this is a new record i think i didn't think grinder had that option well you'd be surprised (laughs) you can do all sorts of stuff on grinder if you know who to ask and let's end that part of the conversation right there (laughs) so seth goslin asks watcher in the water is it a myar Mm, interesting lovecraft inspired Probably not. No. It gets less pressed than the Balrog, but it's pretty freaky. I have a hard time thinking that uh, Tolkien would have been inspired by Lovecraft. I don't. I, I have no idea if he even knew who Lovecraft was or had read it, any of his stuff. Um, and I will say that I think the description in the book 
isn't it, it doesn't give me Lovecraftian vibes in the same way that I think the movie depiction does. I don't know. Yeah, it's okay. It's not written out um, as octopus tentacles. It's written out as snakes, right? The sort of thing, which I think is a slightly different feel when you look at it. Um, also, caught this time that it got oin. Oh, that's sad. I right. I didn't know that it got oin. But oh. Yeah. We're slowly we're slowly killing off our hobbit crew exactly. in, the, in the side stories here. Um, but yeah, I I could not say one word towards whether or not Tolkien was inspired by Lovecraft or anything. I don't get that feel from the character, from its description at all. Right. Um, it's just snakes coming out of water, which honestly is terrifying in and of itself. <laughs> but I do like the idea that uh, it's a Maiar. So the... the uh, or that it's a Maya, the Maiar, or, or whatever it is. I can't remember the plural and the singular. Uh, they are the same level of spirits. These are the angels that were with the gods in the beginning, and many of them either came down or were cast down, and they became wizards or Balrogs or uh, what, what was the other major? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, and it's possible that one of them became the Watcher in the Water. There's... Uh, that great quote, I can't even remember, honestly, if it's in the book, but Gandalf has that great quote in the movie when he says, there are older and fouler things than orcs in the deep places of the earth. And in the book, it does describe how it's possible that uh, in their mining and their delving, the dwarves unearthed the watcher in the water and it took up residence outside the gates and all of that. So, I, you know, I like the idea that it's this old, old, old. Didn't they uh, make mention Maya. at some point that the the, they were lucky because the water level had dropped. Mm -hmm. And so essentially the watcher is now trapped in this oh, right. in there because previously it was like filling part of the entrance to the mines of Moria there, that, mm -hmm. that side. So it could have been something that came up from the depths with the Balrog or whatever and floated out there and then just it dried out and now it's stuck there. And, and Which would be hilarious. The, this <laughs> idea of this great godlike creature that's just stuck in a pond. It's like an yeah. angry goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> flopping around <laughs> angry goldfish oh, you've just found the title of this episode okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay so like shall, shall we move on from the watcher in the water uh let's go to uh we're gonna go even further back another chapter back toward caradras and this is the mountain that they tried to pass and we talked about this a little bit in our first run through ryan but uh, i'll run it past everybody now uh, uh old lady geek asks for our thoughts on climbing caradras does the mountain have some sort of sentience or is it the Dark Lord sending out his will? And what do you guys think? What impression did you get when reading this? Okay, so in the movie, of course, we have Saruman standing on Orthanc and he's holding forth and casting a magic spell and sending bad weather mm -hmm. to go get the fellowship. Uh, but in the book, it sounds like, oh, maybe the mountain itself is hostile to somebody trying to climb over it and is trying to trying to get them well and i don't know if it's necessarily like if it would do that for anybody or if it's just the fact that it could feel the ring passing over it and mm -hmm. wanted somehow to keep that from happening um i feel like gandalf makes a comment at some point that evil dark things are going to seek out frodo which is another reason why the watcher in the water grabs him um the watcher in the water the the uh troll the yeah. or, or the orc chieftain, I guess it is in the book. The orc chieftain goes after Frodo because these things can feel the pull of the ring mm -hmm. subconsciously. So if, I would imagine if somebody else had it, that it would relate. I imagine that it was that it was um, Sauron affecting the mountain. Yeah, okay. that was just me. All right, because he has all of these other creatures that are 
seeking it out and looking. And so that would be a way to trap it on the mountain so that the, I don't know, flying creatures can come and get it or something. Nice. Kyle, you look contemplative. I mean, I realize that there's things going on that is, is preventing them from getting over the mountain, but I also think it somewhat stems from whether it's the characters' misunderstandings of how mountains work in um. January or <laughs> Tolkien's misunderstanding of how mountains work in January, that regardless of, regardless of any ill will traveling over a mountain in January, an actual mountain, <laughs> there's no way in hell they were making it over that pass a couple of weeks after Christmas when they set out from Rivendell. So I'm, which I'm pretty sure they did celebrate by the way in, yeah. uh, in the they, hall of fire. So they, they yeah. set out, <laughs> they set out from Rivendell on Christmas and I'm assuming that there's symbolism there that Tolkien no, never, won. he didn't think about things like that. So that's not true. I guarantee that they left on Christmas <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> so they leave on Christmas and it just seems to me like, there was no way they were making it over that mountain at any point in the winter. So regardless of whether or not Sauron or Saruman or whoever, or the right, mountain right, itself right. is interacting with them. And so I can't, like I said, I can't decide if it's Gandalf's, Boromir's, Aragorn's idiocy, idiocy or if it's Tolkien not understanding hmm. mountains. It's not Tolkien <laughs> not understanding mountains. I guarantee you that. I just, like I said, I just have a problem with, you know, we live in Utah, giant mountains. Yeah. Nobody's making it over that mountain in the middle of winter. On foot. On foot, carrying hobbits around. Um, It just, it just kind of felt weird to me. So. There <laughs> is. There it is. I, I think that actually I, I'm, I'm in the camp of Caradras has sentience i know and that's it, what you said last time yeah, yeah i liked it um <laughs> the biggest moment for me that really depicts this the, that that's the case is as soon as they turn back and they get a certain distance there all of a sudden it just gets super easy again for them like the mountain's like yeah i won get out of here go fine i'm not gonna make it harder for you to leave i'm not trying to kill you <laughs> i just don't want you on me like go away <laughs> get off me so this, i did not give my consent yeah so i that's that's i and i like the idea of essentially the mother middle earth fighting back a little bit because we've had other semi-neutrals in the story of like tom bombadil right like these people so for if the mountain if caradros whatever sits there and says nah i don't want the ring on me get it you know go away like that to me is middle earth having a moment and saying no I'm, I'm going to direct this somewhere else i don't want this here do the mines of moria go underneath caradros yes because basically okay. they come out on the other side and gimli turns around and gives a giant finger to caradros right. yep pretty much <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. So but then how is better how's that better for the mountain to have it go underneath? That doesn't matter. You really want to get into the anatomy of going under a mountain? A and, yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows? I may want to, but I don't think our audience knows. Uh okay, so I let's let's talk about Lothlorien now a little bit and then we'll talk about the book as a whole with what time we have left. Um okay, so let's talk about Lothlorien and how you guys feel about that section because when you think about what are the what are the quote unquote boring parts of the story? Okay, well we've got many meetings. People check out during many meetings. The Council of Elrond is interminable to a lot of people. You get to that section with Caradras, and the fellowship has to go up, and then they have to turn right around and go back and mm -hmm. retrace their steps. And you're like, ah, I just wasted a whole chapter. And now I go into the mines of Moria. 
but all this stuff is happening. You get to Lothlorien and that takes three chapters. It's not even a single chapter. Three chapters long in Lothlorien. Uh, but when I read the book, I can see what people are talking about with the other stuff. Many meetings feels like a long chapter. Council mm-hmm. of Elrond definitely feels like a long chapter. But when I read three chapters of Lothlorien, I don't get that same sense of fatigue. What about you guys? No, I, th- I mean, for me, it's not because it's you're coming off of, I mean, the reader themselves are feeling that same, that same feeling the character's feeling from Gandalf's death. And there's this grievance, like grieve period, right? While you're in Lothorian, and and then you're starting to get things like the mirror with Galadriel, and you, so you're getting new information and and nuggets that are pushing the the overall quest forward. And so I don't feel that same. It doesn't feel like an info dump the same way as the Council of Elrond does, and the way that he's describing the surroundings and the characters and how they're interacting and. Boromir's having his issues with being there and Aragorn's, you know, starting to take the lead and, and realizing like we got to make some choices. Uh, it just doesn't feel like it doesn't drag for me because it's 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 interesting in a way that the Council of Elrond isn't and not that the Council of Elrond isn't interesting, but it's it's written and described in a way that feels fluid where the Council of Elrond just feels like. Like you've come to a stop. Info dump, info dump, info dump. Yeah. You know what I mean? I got you. I got you. It's new information. That's really what, for me, I'm on the same page there. Mm-hmm. I I don't have any, gr- there's nothing in Lothlorien that I was like, oh, wow, that just blew my mind or really connected. With it. But the whole time it is, it's an exploration of a new culture. It's an exploration of uh, the new uh, the new status quo for our, our heroes. Um, we do get to see another very powerful character, even though... I don't feel like in the book that she's there is awe around Galadriel, but we don't understand exactly the extent of how what how incredible she is to this world. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, I, and I think the intrigue around what are our characters going to do now that Gandalf's gone, mm-hmm. right? Because before it was always just we'll yeah, just follow that yeah, guy, follow him, he'll take us. Like Frodo's the ring bearer, okay, yeah, but we're following Gandalf, and as long as Gandalf is here. We'll go the right way. Even if we go the wrong way up the mountain and turn back around, Gandalf will find a solution for us. We'll figure it out. This is the first instance where we don't have that in any of our Middle Earth stories, right? Because you don't, it's Hobbit included. There's no longer a Gandalf presence that's going to come in and, and guide us. So now it's like, oh, what do we do next? Well, and that's especially poignant because none of the, most of the characters expected that they would not stay with Frodo for the whole journey. And at this point they're starting to think, oh, maybe maybe he needs maybe that's what we need to do and they're all just it's a confusing time for them. It's difficult. And so it's nice that they have a chance to kind of sit and rest and then they also have an option where, oh, we don't have to walk all this way. We can take boats and thank you so much for lending us these things and thank you for giving us the bread and, you know, they don't it's it's a it's an opportunity for them to rely on somebody for a little bit which i'm sure they're very grateful for we also get um, another instance i think this is the third major instance of someone rejecting an opportunity to Mm -hmm. take the ring Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so first we had tom bombadil well first we had bilbo really um so maybe four we had bilbo we had tom bombadil we had gandalf don't tempt me i won't take this thing right uh and now we have galadriel and frodo says hey it's all all yours you're obviously more powerful than I am, this ought to go to you. 
and she thinks about it. She thinks she thinks about it, you know, and she ultimately decides not to do so. And I, I think that's probably a point that we'll come back to in later episodes. And so I'll leave that alone for now. But just uh, thinking about that. And it also gives us another soft prophecy, which we talked about a little earlier in this mm-hmm. episode in the mirror of Galadriel. And what you're seeing with, the, you know, when Sam looks in and he sees the Shire and it's burning and she says, this is something that could happen if yeah. you turn away and if the quest fails. And as we know, that is something that indeed will happen, mm. yeah. uh, even though the quest is successful. So very interesting yeah. prophecy or whatever we want to call it there. I, I've i made no secret of the fact that Sam is my favorite character in this series and I or in this novel. Um, and I, I do think it's interesting here that in the book, Sam is involved with the mirror, mirror of Gladril and he, but it's not just, oh, hey, Frodo, but she brings Sam along too. Yep. Um, I don't know if she knows that Sam is going to stick with him the whole way, but she's giving him a chance to really understand the stakes. There you go. All right. And then we get to the end of the, uh, of the book, book two. Now Kyle gets to make his case. And I get to swat him down. Case for what? The case for why this works as a book by itself. Oh. Full story arc. A full story arc book. Okay, so we get to Amon Hen, uh, which is the seat of seeing, uh, and uh, Parth Galen, and there's the we're, we're about to have a battle, but we don't actually get that until the two towers. Instead, what we get is uh, Boromir confronts Frodo, tries to take the ring. Frodo puts the ring on and escapes. Almost gets discovered by the enemy. Um, and then Aragorn gets pissed at Boromir, rightly, I would think. And he says, all right, well, we've got to go find him. Let's split up. We'll go have a look. Boromir, you go make sure that the other hobbits are okay. Sam, you come with me. We'll go find him. And uh, Sam and Frodo end up taking a boat and scurrying off to the east and leaving the fellowship behind. And that's the end of the book. Mm-hmm. So, Kyle... How does this work? So it's the same format that we have in The Hobbit that we have in book one where you've got, you talked about this a little bit earlier in the episode where you've got, you kind of settle in, we're in many meetings, we get the Council of Elrond, they set on their quest, they meet obstacles, they meet more obstacles, they learn, there's, you know, they get to Lothlorien, yeah, all of that. And instead of them reaching their goal at the end of this, like they do in book one where their goal was Rivendell, get the ring across whatever, right? Instead of that, you have the tragedy version where they don't accomplish their goal. The fellowship disbands and you end on it's a tragic arc instead of your uh, normal, what's the word? Heroic. Heroic arc where they accomplish it and it's happily ever after. You end on a down note because the fellowship has disbanded and there is very little hope left. And so it's very much like your second act. If you're looking at like a Shakespearean play or whatever, where you're, you're ending on the down note, right? Okay. So I feel like the arc, it works as an arc. It's not your normal heroic arc where it's like, I can point to the end and say, that's where they overcame everything. That's where the happy ending is. They accomplished their goal. No, they didn't accomplish their goal this time. The fellowship has disbanded. Okay. I, I mean, you kind of, undercut your own point when you compared it to the second act of a Shakespeare a Shakespearean play I might argue the third uh, but depending on the play I suppose sure. anyway but uh, 
you're ending on this down note with an explicit promise of more. You know, everybody's heading sure. off to figure out, you know, to do other things. Mm-hmm. Aragorn's trying to find Frodo. Frodo and Sam are going to keep going toward Mordor. Sure, but every, et cetera, et cetera. So every, every book in the series of The Wheel of Time, you still have a full story arc with explicit promise of there's more story here, right? Right. So just because it's not, just because there's a promise of more story doesn't mean that there's not a complete arc. But I'm talking about there is no resolution. There's no resolution at the end of book two of The Lord of the Rings. Mm. Um, That's not to say there aren't interesting things that happen, but there's no resolution. At the end of book one, you're crossing the the river. You were told, no, that's not a resolution. That's a dissolution. So you have, in book one, Frodo is told by Gandalf, here's the ring. You Yes, you have the ring of power. We know mm-hmm. what it is. This is Sauron's ring. We're not sure what to do yet. Eventually, it'll need to be destroyed, but you just need to get it to Rivendell. That is your mission. Get this ring to Rivendell. I will, or he says, get it to Bree, right? And then we find out later through Aragorn, you okay. need to get it to Rivendell. Um, and so we have a clear quest. And then at the end of book one, Frodo crosses the river and makes it and and even that is kind of a down note you know frodo's maybe dead we don't know but he has completed the quest given to Mm -hmm. him nobody has completed anything at the Uh, end of book two i would disagree with that frodo has decided that he will go on his own and and continue on without the fellowship which is a choice that had to be made that they've been talking about Mm -hmm. beat for beat especially you know what megan was saying when they're in lothlorien the characters are starting to realize Oh, maybe I don't have to go all the way, but Frodo has to make the choice to say, I am going to go on my own, regardless of what everybody else does. I am making the choice to take this to Mordor by myself. That's fine. But in the same vein, Sam has to make the choice to go with him. So the resolution is, I'm going to do this with or without Gandalf at this point. So there's still... That's not a resolution. That's a moment of character... uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Clarity, but it's not a resolution. You wouldn't say that that Frodo has resolved that he's going to do it regardless. Well, and I, <laughs> I, I would also, I mean, you started to mention Sam and the other members. I, I, I would argue, I could argue that um, book two is this is the Fellowship getting together. This is their adventure, and this is the end of them. The being end of together. the Fellowship. Yeah, the yeah. end of the There's Fellowship. There's an absolute arc of the Fellowship. Okay, they come together. They go through all of their beats, just like we were talking about book one. They yeah, encounter yeah. all sure. of their issues, and then the fellowship disbands. And they do kind of make the and choice. Aragorn kind of makes that choice to split up and says, Boromir, you go find the other hobbit. I mean, they're not necessarily saying, we're splitting up right now, but they do but split Frodo up. But Frodo is saying that. Yeah. So Frodo I, makes the choice to disband the, the fellowship. I, I think In which you're case, stretching. they no longer have a reason to all stick together. I think you're stretching pretty hard for this, uh, which is fine. <laughs> and I, w- I'm, I will be legitimately interested to hear what other people have to say on Twitter, Reddit, uh, Discord, whatever. So... chime in let me know what you think uh, on those platforms but i really think your argument is going to break down when we get into books three and four and then five and six which okay uh, uh, yeah anyway but we will get there i want to revisit this and i want to fine those are whole other books and we'll look at them separately so there is a that's the question right the whole (laughs) question was are they're called books book one book two yep. whatever are they books and that's the whole thing that we're trying to figure out and i can make a case 
Book one has a full arc. Book two has a full arc. Does book three? We'll see. Right. Well, you can make a case. It doesn't mean I have to buy it. Mm. Book four does not. You're you're bastardizing an old phrase from me. That's right. That's right. You can coin a phrase, but you can't make a currency. (laughs) That was clever. All right. So um, that does bring up, uh, we're kind of getting into overtime here, but... Uh, Abe Lincoln Froman again says, I want to know your thoughts on Tolkien's process since he conceived this as a single narrative rather than three separate parts. Why do you think he chose to end part of uh, part one where he did seemingly in the middle of narrative action? Well, that's interesting. And, and we we're kind of talking about mm-hmm. this very thing, but the difference is he chose to separate the books where they were, but he would rather have kept them all as one volume and not split them into three different volumes. And so the Fellowship of the Ring, as currently constituted, is... Completely the is, publisher's uh, choice. Yeah, it's un, it's an unnatural cut, uh, you know, according to what Tolkien actually wanted. And so... But did he decide the those moments of break? He, yeah, because well, he chose book one and he, book two. He, right. right, so yeah. he did split it up into six books, and so the publisher, when they wanted three volumes, it was very natural to do, you know, one and two, three and four, five and six. So in Which a way, he I, did not to not to revisit old argument, but to me that lends credence to the idea that there is a full arc there. It may not be what he wanted it to be, but I, if, if Tolkien said it that might not book be two the, ends yeah, here, it might that, not be the arc from start of book one to end of book two. That's not the full arc, but the arc between book one. This is just itself, me, one hundred percent. By itself, book one is the hobbits leave Hobbiton. Book two is the oh, fellowship right, right, and, and just, their adventures I, together. This is me trusting an author and saying, if you said that this is where this resolved, there might have been a better resolution or a better spot in here, but you decided this is where that is, so I'm going to trust you that that's the case. Okay, all right. Again, I'm interested to hear what people say. I, I just don't want to continue flogging this dead horse. Uh, so yeah, it's already. It's already Sorry, a bleeding professor. corpse on the ground. Anyway, speaking of Professor Craig, I haven't even gotten to uh, the timeline stuff that I kind of promised we talked about. I, I guess I'll just bring up one thing. He wrote these chapters through the end, I want to say middle or end of 1940. Oh. So it's been another year, a year and a half since what we talked about in the last episode. So World War Two is in full swing at this point, especially the European theater is uh, is going strong. And there, the only thing I'll mention from Tolkien's life at this point, uh, his son has not entered yet. He will enter the uh, Royal Air Force in 1943. I want to say Christopher Tolkien does. And so that'll come a little bit later. But in 1940, Tolkien is contacted by the government and asked if he would be willing to work as a codebreaker uh or a you know a, a code person of some kind i don't don't know if he would create or break but anyway because he's a professor of linguistics mm-hmm. or you know whatever they were called at the at, at his point in time uh he was asked if he would be willing to do that he said yes and so he did spend some time actually at this point uh in training for that and so i don't think he ever had to do much with that but he was he was ready for that and when the when the bombing of London comes, uh, we'll have a little bit more to talk about what Tolkien was doing at the time. But yeah. So anyway, there you go. Little context for what Tolkien is up to, what the world is up to right now in 1940, as he is writing book two of The Lord of the Rings. Maybe that would be better up front in the episode. Oh, well, here it is in the back. So this time. 
I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll change it up next time. Uh, okay, guys, parting thoughts. Kyle, are you uh, spitting fire still? How are you feeling? I'm feeling fine. Okay, I'm spitting fire. I just, you spitting fire? Yeah, I'm ready to kill you. I'm huh? spitting fire. I put a lot of effort into this. I got notes that didn't even come close. Oh, really? I'm never going to put this much effort into an episode again. Okay, Ryan, <laughs> you want a quick fire I missed, like, at me? Two, I missed my multiple sassy Gandalf references. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, he tells Pippin he's going to use his head to break open the doors of Moria. That's hilarious. <laughs> There's multiple moments like that where he does, where he's just... He would be the Chandler if this was the 90s sitcom Friends Gan- Fellowship. Gandalf Gandler? would be Chandler. Yeah, Gandler. Gandler. There you go. Oh, but. okay. What else you got? Quick fire me. Okay, here's a couple good quotes. Quick fire. Okay. Uh, faithless is he... No, certainly. Who says farewell before... When the, the road darkens. Yeah. Gimli there. Uh, but Elrond then challenges him back. Says, uh, maybe, but let him not vow to walk in the dark who has not seen, who has not seen in the nightfall. Yet... Uh, yet sworn word may make strength and I, I love the interaction between Elrond and Gimli in this about these okay. contrasting ideas. They're great. Um, this is in uh, the third chapter, right? Ringo South. Yep. Yeah. Another great one. I enjoy Sam showing his hardiness when he goes, uh, my heart's right down in my toes, Mr. Pippin, said Sam, but we aren't Etten yet. And there are some stout folk here with us. Whatever may be in store for old Gandalf, I'll wager it isn't a wolf's belly. Wow. <laughs> He's going for it, ladies I and did. gentlemen. I went for it. But it... Good Sam, Gordon. Sam showcasing his uh, stoutness and his trust in the people around him. Like, this is the first, this is early signs of Sam being the hero of this story. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Anyway. We talked about, in our first round, we talked about uh, Sam being an exemplar of what a follower is and how we sometimes uh, prize, quote unquote, leadership to the detriment of other qualities of character mm-hmm. in our society. Everybody has to show leadership qualities. Are you a leader or are you a follower? Oh, you're a follower? Well, then you're not worth as much as somebody who's a leader. Uh, But in reality, we need good followers. And Sam is really good at finding the right people to follow and following them. Well, and he really pays attention and he really cares about them. And he'll do anything. Like I, I think Sam is definitely, he shows leadership qualities later on, but his being a leader isn't necessarily the most important thing to him. He just wants to take care of the people that he loves. Indeed. Yep. Ryan, anything else you want to go through? Uh, Frodo has his Spider-Man moment. We realize he's got some additional superpowers from being stabbed. Oh, yeah. He sees in the dark, which Uh allows him to spot Gollum's eyes. So, you know, just enjoying some of those moments, those uh, realizations there. And we can get A radioactive Morgul blade. Yes. Um, Frodo man, Frodo man does whatever a hobbit can. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We can get into a discussion about Isengard and the Industrial Revolution and Tolkien's perceptions later when we revisit that. Oh, man, that's going to be great for book three. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, we've we've got some other stuff. I bet you've got other things and maybe we could do a weekender on some of this stuff or something. I don't know. I just want to say really quickly that I am glad that Bilbo gets a little bit of closure here because he kind of, he leaves, he leaves the ring and then Frodo comes to Rivendell and... Bilbo is kind of faced with the string again. He's like, I'd, I'd just like to see it one more time. And then he has this experience where he realizes, no, it's, I'm really glad I let it go. I'm so sorry that you have to deal with this. And so they kind of get this moment where Frodo sees how hard it was on Bilbo to let it go and kind of gets the first inclination that this is not going to be easy. And so when he um, volunteers to take the ring again in the Council of Elrond, he's he has a better idea of what all that's in, that involves. Um and just how hard that's going to be mm-hmm. on him like emotionally and as a person but also like 
out in the world with people trying to come and get him. As we know, Tolkien was not a fan of allegory in most cases. I mean, we talked in an earlier episode about Leaf by Niggle, and so you can uh, you can take it with a grain of salt, but mm-hmm. he did not generally care for writing or reading allegory. Uh, but he loved applicability, and it's hard not to look at the ring and see some uh, some addiction... Mm-hmm. nuggets to take out of it and what it's like to deal with addiction and how you can yeah uh, how you can deal with that or in yourself or somebody close to you and that's that's one of those moments right where he says i'd really like to see it one more time yeah mm-hmm. no that's a really bad idea yeah yeah that's a very bad idea you right. don't you don't want to see this you don't want to go near it you don't want to you know whatever so yeah and scariest i scariest moment in the films there's a comment later that Oran <laughs> says that there's another reason why the ring should be destroyed. As long as it in the world, it is in the world, it will be a danger even to the wise. For nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. And so it just, hmm. if the ring's in the world, nobody's going to be safe. It needs to be destroyed. Yep. Here, here. All right. Well, we're going to do that in books three through six. So let's go do that. Resounding strong finish here. Wow. <laughs> I'll go read it. We're now. resolving about as well as this book did. Exactly. Ooh. Snap. Man. Sweet. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>